Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Great to have you with us this morning. Um, Let's open in a word of prayer. Lord God, uh, thank you for just the the warmth in the air, uh, a reminder of of your love for us, your grace to us, of of good things that we don't deserve, Lord. Uh, May we enjoy it, Lord, uh, as a gift from you for your glory. Uh, But now, Lord, we turn to your word, and we pray that through your spirit, um, Lord, that you would would be continuing to to deliver us uh, from evil, Lord God, that you would be uh, improving our story for your glory, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, As I was graduating from seminary, I was looking at a couple different churches, uh, and one of the churches I was looking at was New Hope Church on the other side of Green Bay, where I ended up landing, and had a phone interview, and things went well, and so they invited me and my wife and our baby Corbin to come up and visit Green Bay in person. And, uh, and so we came up and we stayed at a house just north of UWGB, uh, Jim Ficker's house, for those of you who know who he is. And Jim was out of town, and so we stayed there. Um, and it was evening, and we had the evening to ourselves, and so I asked my wife what she wanted to eat, and she wanted Rocky Rococo's. Uh, I believe it was Rocky Rococo's. Do you guys remember Rocky Rococo's? Because uh, she had it in Eau Claire, but we didn't have it in St. Louis. So I ordered Rocky Rococo's, which I think no longer exists in Green Bay, and I was driving uh, to go get the pizza because I'm too cheap to have it delivered. And so I was driving uh, down Nicolay Drive past UWGB. And as you keep driving south, there's kind of a bend in the road and it turns into University Avenue, uh, if you know what I'm talking about. And so I was driving south of where the VA is right now, although it wasn't there at the time. And coming up on that round turn that you go around. And as I came up to that turn... I saw uh, three cars stopped. It was dark out. It was night out. They had their flashers on. And I saw some people huddled in the road, and I didn't know what was going on. And so I pulled up. I stopped. I put my flashers on, and I went up to, uh, to where everybody was to see what was going on. And what I, what I saw was that there was uh, this man laying on the ground, probably around 20 years old. Uh, he was naked with a coat draped over him by one of the people. And someone was above him and holding his throat with a pair of gloves and, and a rag. Uh, he was, had his hand over his throat. Evidently, the guy had been bleeding. And so I came up and said, what can I do? And they said, can you just hold him down, try to keep him from trying to run away? And so I held the man down until the ambulance came. Uh, thankfully, I believe he uh, didn't die that night. Um, but it was a pretty traumatic experience. Uh, what I found out later from some EMTs is that what had happened is this man was, I think, at a mental health institution, uh, but he had escaped. And, and because of the drugs in the system, his, his, he felt like he was burning up and so rips his clothes off. He goes up to some woman's house that he doesn't know, rings the doorbell, and when she opens the door, uh, he cuts himself in such a way that it's clear that he's trying to take his own life. And then he's running across the road to run into the woods to die. 
And by the grace of God, he gets hit by a car. I know it sounds weird, but by the grace of God, he gets hit by a car, knocked to the ground. People come out, hold him down until the EMT comes to save his life. Now, you may say that doesn't seem like a true story. It's an absolutely true story. Uh, and it was one of the reasons I was like, man, we need to come to Green Bay. Like, this is, there's a need here in Green Bay. Naked people running around. But, 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 but during that, the reason why I share that story is because the story that we read today is actually somewhat similar to that story. Um, but as we will see, it's actually thousands of times worse than that story. It's a heavy, a scary, and sad situation that comes in contact with a powerful Savior. And so uh, we're going to look today, if you would open your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. Uh, we are going to be looking through verses 1 through 20 today. It's a longer passage, so I'm just going to read verses 1 through 5 to start with. But if you are in the Red Bible, it's page 840. If you do not have a Bible, you will need one. You can feel free to get up and grab one from the back and bring it back. It's page 840 in the Red Bible. Uh, just to remind you where we were before this, Jesus was in his home city of Capernaum, uh, teaching in parables to the people. When he's done teaching, he says to his disciples, let's go to the other side of the sea. They don't know why, but Jesus has a reason why he's going. While they are out to sea, a great windstorm arises and waves are lapping into the boat and it seems like it's gonna sink. Meanwhile, Jesus is in the boat sleeping. He's down in the lower part of the boat. And so the disciples are, are scared that they're going to die. They come to wake Jesus up. And they say, Jesus, don't you care? Don't you care that we are about to perish? And what we find out, as Pastor Cunningham shared last week, the reason why Jesus was asleep wasn't because he didn't care. It's because he was in control. Because Jesus was in control of the storm. And so Jesus wakes up and he tells the wind and the waves to stop. And it does. And what we read at the end of of last chapter, chapter four, is they went from fearing the storm to being terrified of Jesus. Because as powerful as the storm was, there was one in the boat who had even more power. And so they continue on their trip and they land in a region called uh, Gerasenus. Gerasenus. I forgot how to pronounce it. <laughs> but, but they land in this region, and that's where we pick up the story, the disciples landing in this region. Let's see if I say it right when we read it. So Mark chapter 5, verse 1 through 5, and we'll cover the rest of the verses later. This is God's word. Mark 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. There we go. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Let's pray again. Lord. As we turn to your word, pray that you would soften our hearts to hear what you have to speak to us through this man's story. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So last week, the end of chapter four, we saw that Jesus has power and authority over the storms outside of us. But the question we face today is, does Jesus have power and authority over the storms inside of us? The, 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 the storms of rage, of 
anger, of bitterness, of unforgiveness, the storms of lust and greed and manipulation? Does Jesus have power over those storms? We saw he has power over the storms outside of us, but what about all of the storms that torment us and rage inside of us? Does Jesus have authority and power over those storms? You know, it's so interesting because of the four gospels, the gospel of Mark is the shortest and Mark is always direct and to the point and leaves out a lot of details, but not in this story today. And the reason why he spends so much time, so much ink on this story today is because we need to know, we need to know this. Is there one who can calm the storm inside of me? And so today I simply wanna share with you this man's story with the hope that inside of his story, you might be reminded of the hope within your story. And so the first part of this man's story is possession. He's a possessed man. Later on, as we get, read, read through this story in verse 15, 16, and 18, we are told that he is a demon-possessed man. In verse 9, Jesus says, tell me your name. And he says, my name is Legion, for we are many. The, the term Legion can refer to a dispatchment of 6,000 Roman Soldiers, And so this guy doesn't just have one demon. He doesn't have three demons. He doesn't have seven demons. He has thousands of demons, thousands of demons within him. This is the greatest concentration of demonic activity that we see in the Bible outside of when God threw Satan and his angels out of heaven and his demons out of heaven. This is the greatest concentration of demonic evil attack. And it's indwelling this man. And remember, this man ran to them. He came to them, right? So you can imagine how scary this was for his disciples. But I want to look back at the first five verses really quick, and I want you to pay special attention to the physical conditions of this man, the way that, that it describes this man and the condition that he is in. So look with me again at verse one. It says, then Jesus and the apostles came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. This is non-Jewish country. This is Gentile country. And so these are not people who worship Yahweh God. They did not worship the Lord. Jesus goes to this region. Verse two, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Let's pause there. This was a very dangerous, a very wicked man. Um, it is no stretch to assume that he had hurt other people, maybe even killed other people. And so the townspeople tried to chain him up in the graveyard outside of town for their own safety. But as his demonic possession grew, as more demons filled him, as he invited them in, he became so powerful that he could break the chains. And so they had no way of containing him. You could imagine how scary of a situation this must have been for the time, for the, for the town. Verse 5, it says, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. This man's life had spiraled out of control. He became isolated from people, living in a graveyard among the dead and up in the mountains. 
And the man was in so much pain and agony. He was so tormented by the evil that was inside of him. He cried out constantly and he would cut himself just to release the pain. Could you imagine a man like that today? Well, I don't think it's a stretch to imagine a man like that today. Because I think what God is doing here in this passage is he is using the physical description of this man to remind us of our spiritual condition. Describing him physically so that we can see what is true of us spiritually. Now, chances are you are not demon-possessed, although at times it might feel that way. But from birth, all of us have been possessed with a love for sin. All of us have been possessed with evil. You know, one of my favorite verses, which seems really weird, but just reminds me of the depravity of my own heart, the depravity of my own soul, is Romans chapter 1. Because I read through it and I'm like, check, 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 check. This is what it says in Romans chapter 1. I believe it's up on the screen. There it is. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. He's not done. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And though they know God's righteous decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Maybe I can speak for all of us, but we love sin. And the reason we love sin is because our hearts are evil and left unchecked, just like this man. The evil within us grows stronger and stronger and stronger. It consumes us. It enslaves us. It leads us into a spiral out of control. It torments us. It tries to destroy us. It enslaves us, and we are helpless against it. The demon-possessed man is a physical picture of our spiritual condition. In 1886, Robert Louis Stevenson published a book called The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I'm guessing most of you here have heard of that book, or at least Jekyll and Hyde. And in this story, he tells, he, he tells the story of a man with a dual nature. Uh, one nature is he's this doctor who's really sweet and caring out in public. He's charitable. He's such a wonderful person out in public. But then in private, he's a completely different person. He's an evil man. He's a murderer. And he's called Mr. Hyde. In the book, uh, Dr. Henry Jekyll says this. He says, in each of us, two natures are at war, the good and the evil. I think why this book resonates with us 125 years later is because deep down inside, we know that we are like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. In public, we can be the kindest, most gentle, most loving person the world has ever seen. But then in our own homes, we can become monsters. One minute we can be driving in the car at church and, and yelling at one another or just sitting in silence and frustration and anger. And the next minute we come in and say, oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. It's been famously said that character is who you are when no one else is looking. And I don't know about you, but that is a convicting statement. Here's the point I'm trying to make. When you're trying to figure out if your heart is evil or not, 
Don't look at who you are on Sunday mornings. Look at who you are on Friday night. Don't look at who you are when someone gives you a compliment, but look at who you are when a family member critiques your driving or your cooking. When you're trying to determine the condition of your heart, don't, don't look at who you are in the atrium on Sunday mornings, but look at who you are when you are alone in your room at night. No wonder why the Apostle Paul in Romans says, says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Friends, like the man in this story, your biggest problem in your life is not your spouse, and it is not your kids, and it is not your parents. Your biggest problem in life is not the government, it is not your boss, and it is not the public school system. Your biggest problem in life is you. You are your biggest problem. Now, I know you're probably saying, you don't know my family, you don't know my boss, you don't know my school, they're my biggest problem. According to this passage, according to the scriptures, you are your biggest problem. And the question is, have you confessed this? Have you confessed this to God? Have you confessed this to yourself? Because this is the beginning of what it means to become a Christian. This is the beginning of the good news for this man and for you as well. The bad news is that your heart is evil and you cannot overcome it. But the good news is that God has sent one who can. God has sent us a powerful Messiah who we will see has the awesome power to rescue you from you. So let's look at verse six. It says, and when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. To be honest, there's a lot of speculation that happens in this passage I try not to get into. We don't know if it was the man uh, who was running to Jesus to try to get deliverance or if it was the demons inside the man uh, propelling him to run to Jesus, to confront Jesus. I think it was maybe a little bit of both. But what we do know for sure is it is the demons inside of him that yells at Jesus, that cries out to Jesus and asks Jesus this extremely important question, a really, a really, uh, a really vital question that every person should be asking of Jesus if you are convinced of your own depravity. And the question is this, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? And then the demons began to beg and began to grovel before Jesus. He says, I adjure you by God, do not torment us. Do not torment me. You know, last week we saw that the disciples really did not have this awe and fear of, of Jesus until Jesus performed this miracle where he calmed the storm. And then they were terrified of Jesus because they saw how powerful he was. But notice here, the demons don't need a miracle. They know the identity of Jesus. They know that Jesus is the, is the almighty God of the universe. They know they are in big trouble. They know it is no contest between them and Jesus. And so they beg Jesus for mercy. And it's so fascinating because they actually adjure God begging for mercy from Jesus. And so immediately they are afraid. And they fall prostrate before Jesus and grovel for mercy. Verse 9 continues. 
It says, and Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many, thousands, as we will see, at least around 2,000, as we'll see in a little bit. And he begged him, again, there you see, begging him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. You know, it's so amazing to me that this man is filled of thousands of demons. And yet these thousands of demons know just like that. They know that this man from Nazareth, this carpenter, has power and authority over them. And so they don't even try to fight Jesus. They just come to him and beg for mercy. So let's see what happens. Verse 13. It says, so Jesus gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The goal of demons of the demonic world is to inhabit and destroy. They wanted to do this with the man. It didn't happen by the grace of God. But as soon as they enter the pigs, you see their intentions to destroy their hosts. And so the pigs rush and dive into the sea and die. Now, we're not exactly sure why Jesus sends these demons into the pigs. A part of me thought maybe Jesus wanted to have a bacon potluck and this was the easiest way to do it. I'm not sure. But what we do know is that this number of pigs shows us at the very minimum, this man had 2,000 demons inside of him because it filled the 2,000 pigs. There might have been even more. And so I don't know, I don't know if you noticed, but when Jesus casts out demons, when Jesus heals the sick, when Jesus calms the storm, Jesus never calls on a higher power because Jesus is the highest power, because Jesus is God in the flesh. And here's the thing, all of the demons in the whole world know this, but do we know this? Do we believe this? Do we believe that Jesus is the highest power even over evil in this world and even inside of us? In the 1980s, there was a famous boxer, many of you probably still know his name. His name's Mike Tyson. And uh, he had a funny voice, but no one would mess with him because he had huge muscles. And uh, there was a fight in 1986 in which he was fighting Marvis Frazier. Uh, Frazier was 16 and one. He was a bad dude. He knocked out a lot of people. He was a big dude. And Tyson was 24 and 0. And so there was a lot of hype before this fight. And people spent thousands of dollars just to get, you know, seats close to the ring. And so the night finally comes and the bell dings. In about 30 seconds, the fight is over. <laughs> I don't even think Mavis threw a punch. Uh, Tyson just went and just knocked him out, and the fight was over. It was no contest. This is a picture of Jesus compared to these demons. Matter of fact, it would be like Mike Tyson versus an ant. Jesus, Jesus is not sweating this. Jesus is not like, oh, man, I hope I can defeat these demons. Jesus, no, he has authority, and the demons know he has authority. And so if you are sitting here looking at the evil raging in this world, wondering, man, is God going to win? The answer is yes. God is going to win, and it's going to be no contest because he has ultimate authority over the evil in this world. And that's why these demons grovel for mercy throughout this passage. Last week, we saw that Jesus has calmed the scary storm at sea, but now we see that Jesus can calm the horrifying storm, the destructive, devastating storm that rages inside of us, that he can deliver us from evil. 
So just to recap this story of this man, he, has, he is a possessed man, or he was a possessed man, but he was delivered by a powerful Messiah. And then he is sent to proclaim the mercy of God. Look with me in verse 14. It says, the herdsmen, those who were tending to the pigs, fled and told it in the city and the country. And so they went and told everyone. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Notice here the first people to proclaim the might of Jesus and the majesty of Jesus and the mercy of Jesus is not the man who received those things from Jesus, but it was those who witnessed what happened to this man. These herdsmen had never seen anything like this before in their entire life. These demons coming out, filling these pigs, being cast in sea. It was a fantastic spectacle to see. And so they go and they tell everyone they can and they come out to see for themselves. And they find this man who they have been afraid of, who has been filled with demons, who had been running around naked. And they come and they find this man clothed and in his right mind. And they're trying to piece it all together, trying to figure out what in the world just happened here. And then we read this in verse 16 and 17. It says, And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. You know, these 2,000 pigs would have been a huge economic hit for someone, probably for the whole community in some ways. It would have taken a while for them to recuperate their losses. And so they beg Jesus to depart from them. Because the power of Jesus and the mercy of Jesus was a threat to that which they cherished more than Jesus. Let me just say that again. They asked Jesus to leave town because the power of Jesus and the mercy of Jesus was a threat to which they cherished more than Jesus. What did they cherish more than Jesus? Pigs. What did they cherish more than Jesus? Money. What did they cherish more than Jesus? comfort. Now, before we condemn them, let me ask you this question. Where in your life do you ask Jesus to leave? In what part of your life do you cherish something more than Jesus, and you don't want the power and mercy of Jesus to invade that area? You see, the power and mercy of Jesus threatens our way of living. The power and mercy of Jesus threatens our secret addictions. The power and mercy of Jesus threatens our hearts of bitterness and anger and unforgiveness. The power and mercy of Jesus threatens our idolatry of financial prosperity and possessions. If you are a Christian, certainly you have experienced the power and mercy of Jesus in your life. But what areas of your life do you quarantine from Jesus? What areas of your life do you say, Jesus, don't go there? Jesus wants to bring his power and mercy over every area of your life to deliver you like he did this man. The passage continues in verse 18. And it says, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. You may have seen this, but this word beg shows up a lot in this passage. The demons beg Jesus to send them away, begs Jesus to send them into the pigs. The townspeople beg Jesus to go away. And now this man who is overwhelmed by the mercy of God and the power of God begs Jesus that he can go with Jesus. Verse 19, Jesus' response may surprise you. And Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, 
Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This man begged to go with Jesus. And Jesus said no. He said, I have another mission for you. You are going to be a billboard of God's mercy and power to this community right here. And so the man went to tell others about the power and mercy of Jesus in his life. He was a walking, living, breathing testimony of the power of God. And he went throughout the Decapolis, which is the 10 cities, proclaiming all that Jesus had done for him. You see, this man, whom the townspeople knew to be a monster, was now in his right mind. And the only explanation, the only explanation was Jesus. You know, I, I, I've experienced this in my own life. Um, share with you a couple stories. So I became a Christian right before I went off to college. And, and, and just seeing God's wisdom and timing in that and how I could be a testimony to those in my fraternity house. And so when I got to, uh, when I got to my fraternity house, I'd just become a Christian, but I didn't act like a Christian in a lot of ways. And yet through those four years, God was growing me in holiness and happiness, um, which, I mean, if you're in a fraternity house, those seems, things don't usually seem like they go together, right? If you're growing in holiness, you're not growing in happiness. But I was growing in holiness and growing in happiness, and I had this joy of belonging to the Lord, and the people would marvel, and they say, what's happening to you? I don't get it. You don't do the things that we do, and yet you're so happy and so joyful. Why is it? And I didn't know how to articulate the, the fundamentals of the faith. And I just say, it's Jesus. That's all I could say. It's Jesus. This, this past summer or a little bit ago, one of my nieces, I can't remember if I shared this with you before, but she's like, you know, why is your, I, I know your extended family and everything is pretty messed up. Why is your family somewhat normal? Like, what, why, why did that happen? It's like, the only thing I can say, it's Jesus. Jesus is the reason. Jesus the power of Jesus and the deliverance of Jesus in my life. Another story, and I know I've shared this with you before. It's one of my favorite stories. But after Trish and I were married, we were going uh, to go to seminary. So we moved to St. Louis, and we were visiting different churches. And as we visited different churches, we were trying to figure out where we would fit in and belong and things like that. And we show up at this one church, and there was this girl there. And this girl was a Christian in high school. I wasn't a Christian in high school. And so she comes up, and she's like, why are you here? Like, even like, why are you at church kind of? But, um, but I said, yeah, so we just moved here to go to seminary. And I was like, oh, you know, I'm pretty proud of that. That's pretty exciting. And I thought, you know, she's going to be really encouraging about, oh, that's great. That's wonderful. You know, go get them. That's not how she responded at all. She said, you? Seminary? You got to be kidding me. And she went on to talk about what a jerk I was in high school and how arrogant I was and all these things. And she's going on and on about what a monster I was in high school. And when she paused to grab a breath, I finally inserted myself and said, well, you know what? God does great things. It's the, only explanation, the only explanation I had is it is Jesus. You see, friends, you are walking, living, breathing testimonies to the power and mercy of Jesus. And he's calling you to go and share your story. It may be messy, it may be sloppy, but just share your story of how God has worked in your life, how he has shown you mercy and through his power has transformed you. And I will say to you, if you are a newer Christian, you have an advantage. You have an advantage because people have seen where you were and where you are now and they will marvel at the transformation. And we see the fruit of this actually um, 
there's a passage where, where Jesus is kicked out of this region, um, but he actually comes back. I don't know if it's months later or years later. He comes back to this region, and we read this in Matthew 15. It says, and great crowds came to him. We, we learn it's 4,000 men plus women and children, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Remember, these are not Israelites, but because of this one man's testimony around the Decapolis, around these 10 cities, People marveled and they wondered. And when Jesus came back, thousands of them showed up and they didn't eat for three days. They were so entranced with Jesus. And they became worshipers of the God of Israel. Possession, power, proclamation. That is the story of this man. That is the story of the 4,000 that showed up when Jesus returned. That is your story and that is my story if we have been delivered by Jesus Christ. Let me end with this. Um, in, the, in the book, Dr. Jackal and Mr. Hyde, um, the, the book actually kind of ends in tragedy. Uh, Dr. Jackal and Mr. Hyde, it's the same person with dual personalities. Uh, he ends up taking his own life. And the reason why he takes his own life is because he's convinced that he does not have power to get rid of the evil in his own heart and the evil in his own soul. And to a degree, he's right. We do not have power over ourselves. We do not have power over the evil within us. But the good news is that God has sent one who does. God has sent one who can calm the storms in our soul, who can deliver us from evil. And you know what? We actually have a better story than this man that we read here in Mark chapter 5 because we know how the story continues. You see, Jesus didn't just cross the sea uh, uh, the, the, the Sea of, of, of uh, what's it? The Sea of Galilee, that's what it is. Jesus didn't just cross the Sea of Galilee to come to you. He actually crossed all eternity to come for you. And you weren't just living amongst the dead, you were one of the dead. You were dead in your sins and your transgressions, as Ephesians chapter 2 says. And Jesus didn't just take your evil and cast it into pigs and send him into the sea to die, but Jesus actually took your evil and cast it upon himself. And went to the cross to die for your sin and your behalf. And then he rose from the dead to deliver you from evil for all eternity. And then he has sent his spirit into you to continue to deliver you more and more from the evil that resides within. I don't know what evil you're struggling with, but let me ask you this. Do you believe, do you believe that Jesus has power to deliver you? If he can cast out 2,000 demons, he has power to cast out evil in your soul. Final thing, if you're here and not a Christian, can I just give you one encouragement? And the one encouragement is this, give up on yourself. Give up on yourself. Quit thinking that you can defeat evil on your own. You have tried for however old you are and you have not been successful. Come to Jesus, fall at his feet, beg him for mercy and let his power deliver you from evil. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so thankful that you would come for us, that you would come for people like us that on the outside might look pretty and nice and wonderful, but on the inside are so often monsters and we're isolated and rejected by many people because of it, but you have come to save us and deliver us to yourself. And so God, we thank you, Lord, 
And God, while we know you have delivered us from eternal evil, we know that, that there's still the residue of evil in our heart and our soul. And so God, pray that your deliverance would continue through the mercy and the power of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen.